0: Now, please stand with me for our gospel reading from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about the people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, "'Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy.' The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about the people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he has rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? The Word of God for the people of God. Be to God.
1: We talk a lot in our church about holy love for God, holy love for a neighbor and holy love for self. And I have to, in a moment of vulnerability, um, say that I've always felt a lot more comfortable with the first two of those. Holy love for God seems obvious. Holy love for neighbor seems pretty clear when you read Jesus in the Gospels, but holy love for self, is something about that has has always bothered me, and I remember the first time Uh, somebody pointed this out to me. It was my friend Dallas Pfeiffer. He said, you know, Jesus says to uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and as yourself, that phrase implies that you actually love yourself. And I was like, that's bullcrap. I struggled with this idea, and and, and as I've I've tried to think through it, I think there's something about this really strange mixture of both growing up in rural poverty, where uh, you're implicitly taught not to like yourself or anything about you, and then you combine it with uh, my spiritual formation being primarily in evangelical circles, which is where a lot of guilt and a lot of shame exists. And so this whole idea of like loving yourself always seemed problematic and difficult to me even the idea of advocating for myself. I will go to the mats for you. I will be a jerk if I have to for you. But for myself, I have always struggled with this. And I've been really fortunate over the years. My wife is really good about advocating and telling me that I'm worth advocating for and really I've learned from her how to advocate for myself and I didn't really realize how far I'd come until recently when I was trying to get this jaw surgery situation and I was dealing with an insurance company and if you don't advocate for yourself to an insurance company you are not getting anything done and I went to the mats and I still didn't get anything done but I but I did it And I remember, like, after spending hours of advocating for myself on the phone, and uh, finally, like, I was just like, I'm not getting off the phone until I talk to somebody who can make a decision. They were like, well, there's really no one here. I was like, I don't care. I'll wait right here. And the lady was like, sir, there's no one here who can talk to you. And I was like, well, the good thing is, it's Friday. That's my day off. This is 8 o'clock in the morning. I was like, it's Friday. It's my day off we can listen to each other breathe for the next 24 hours. (laughs) And guess what, I got to talk to somebody. Advocating for myself as an expression of holy love has felt very unnatural to me for most of my life, but I've learned how to do it. I imagine as well that the widow in this story, that the, that the, 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 the idea of advocating for herself had to feel unnatural for multiple reasons. Not every widow in the Bible was poor. Okay, a lot of the Jesus' support in his ministry came from wealthy widows, but we get indicators in this parable that this woman was poor for a couple of different reasons. One, um, women did not usually represent themselves in court. Usually. That was done by a male, the most powerful male in her social relationships, which would usually be a family member and if not, someone else. So that this woman is representing herself in court before a judge tells us, A, that she probably doesn't have someone to advocate for her. She can't afford someone else to advocate her. And also it's likely she says to the judge, right? She's like, Hey, give me justice before my enemy. It's the the Greek is like, give me justice before my adversary. It's also likely, or at least a strong possibility that the person who's not giving her justice, the, the person she's suing is probably the lead male relative in her family. So this is a woman who uh, falls in the category that the Bible often refers to as widows and orphans, right? The most vulnerable people in her society. And here she is having to advocate for herself in a highly, highly patriarchal world. And despite what people will tell you today, patriarchy is never really benevolent at its roots, There's a reason the Bible has to talk so much about widows and orphans in a culture of patriarchy. Because in a culture of patriarchy, the most vulnerable people who are generally not able-bodied men are often the most overlooked. So this woman has to advocate for herself before a judge That Jesus says of the judge that he neither fears God nor humans. Now, you and I in our society, we would probably automatically assume that that's a good thing. What we want in a judge is somebody who is cool and objective and disinterested and can evaluate the information in an equal kind of way to make sure that everybody gets justice. We have a belief, a fundamental belief in democracy that justice must be blind, which is why when we feel like someone in the court system is compromised morally or relationally, we expect them to recuse themselves such as when Clarence Thomas was found out to have cavorted with billionaires over whom he saw many of their Supreme Court cases. What we would expect would be that he would recuse himself from those cases. This is what we expect in a democratic society. If your objectivity is compromised, you recuse yourself. So this then raises the question, what does Jesus mean when he says this judge neither feared God nor cared about people? Well, the reality is, in the ancient world, and particularly in the Jewish ancient world, they did not assume that justice was blind. They did not assume that the corruption of justice could be mended by objectivity, rather when communities are relationally destroyed, it takes an emphasis on relationship to mend those wounds. The restoration of justice to a community in the Bible required judges who were attentive, particularly to the vulnerable in a community. They're not partisan in a left-right kind of way. They're partisan toward the poor. So when Jesus says that this judge neither fears God nor fears other human, what Jesus is actually doing is criticizing this man for not having a partisanship toward the poor. In particular, in this parable, he has no interest, concern, empathy, or conscience related to this woman who is daily coming to his court asking for justice. He does not care about her at all. And the only reason he gives in to her requests It's because he's annoyed by the paperwork. She's wearing me out with constant requests. She's coming in here every single day demanding this, adding to my workload. In fact, the Greek uh, is is actually crazier than this. This this is our English translations trying to give us something that feels safe to us. The, The Greek is wild. The Greek is... He's annoyed with her because she is going to give me a black eye with her constant requests. And you and I might, as with the translators of our English Bibles, automatically go to and say, well, that's just a figure of speech. He's talking about his character. She's going to blot his character. I don't know. Remember, we've talked about before, Ever, people, people in parables are not moral examples, right? Like Jesus is not telling a parable expecting you to go black the eye of a judge, okay? The point of the parable is all that it symbolizes. This parable, this black eye, this language comes from the boxing realm in ancient Greco-Roman society. He's literally saying she's going to come and punch me in the face because she is so irritated, and her demand for justice is so insistent. Now, check out how wild this is. You have an able-bodied man in a patriarchal society with all the judicial legal power behind him, and he is afraid of an elderly, frail widow with no social power behind her. It's absurd. Jesus is making a joke. None of us would believe that a judge would be that afraid that a frail old woman would give him a black eye. It's absurd. But the absurdity is it's the whole point we've actually seen this over and over in Luke that what Luke is doing is showing the complete hopeful unexpected absurd idea that the great Power structures of the world will be reversed by widows demanding justice, by hungry beggars daily sitting outside a rich man's house, by teenage Mothers out of wedlock, by infants holding the world together, by nail pierced hands healing our fractured world. And none of it, none of it looks like. None of it on the surface looks like anything that's world changing. And that is Luke's point. Luke tells us at the very beginning that what Jesus is actually doing with this parable, he's going to teach us about praying and it's always so interesting to me when we talk about prayer including myself that when we talk about praying what what's our fundamental assumption about prayer that prayer is only worth it if it works if it works the whole point of prayer is to work to sort of make god takes god's powerful hand and rearrange the, cheese pieces, the chess pieces on the board to work out in our favor, whatever we think that is. We want prayer to be powerful, and we want prayer to work. But what if the point of prayer... Stay with me here. What if the point of prayer is it doesn't work? What if its main point is not about whether it works? What if the point of prayer... Sorry, that was Widow punching out. I was gonna say something about Little Mac knocking out Mike Tyson. We're gonna leave that right there for a second. What if prayer is Little Mac? Small, ineffective, going up against the most powerful fighter in the universe. What if prayer is our participation in the great reversal of all things, whether it works or doesn't. Our society is so shaped by pragmatism, we only invest ourselves in what works, and prayer might just be a royal waste of time. If point is that it works. I saw this video. This is all free right here. This is not my sermon notes. I saw this video of this guy who did his PhD dissertation in whether or not prayer works. And he's, a, he's an atheist. So what he did was he spent a couple of years literally traveling around the world to the most holy sites and giving himself to prayer in all of these different temples and all of these different religions. And what he did was he came back and he was like, my conclusion in the dissertation is that prayer doesn't work because God didn't do anything. And I was just like, yeah, okay, like I see how that's rhetorically powerful and everything, but your fundamental assumption is A, that God has to move when you say move. And B, that prayer is primarily about working. But what if prayers instead is simply about you and I participating in the great reversals that God is bringing about in the healing of the world? What if prayer doesn't work, but rather prayer is advocating for ourselves and others by participating in the seemingly powerless and ineffective acts of holy love that reverse all of human values. What if prayer is standing on a street corner demanding Governor Bill Lee listen as we advocate for the life of a man who is innocent of a crime he's going to die for? Doing it Knowing that Bill Lee is probably not paying attention to us. What if, what if prayer is next time, because there will be a next time, next time there's a Tyree Nichols, the church community of all people are the people who are marching with his family. Feeling like this is powerless and ineffective, but feeling like the powerless and ineffectiveness of it is how God changes the world. What if prayer is a 13-year-old girl about to have a baby out of wedlock saying to God, bring down the mighty and uplift the poor? What if prayer is an elderly woman who is well past childbearing years saying to the angel, yes, I will do whatever God asks me to do, though I am frail and though society has overlooked me and though I am viewed as powerless and ineffective, I still have something to give. What if prayer is learning to advocate for yourself when you're talking to insurance companies? Prayer is you and me joining our voices to those voices that seem powerless and ineffective and saying, no, no, the slave shall be our brother, as the song said. No, no, the world will be reversed. Last week, the Pharisees asked Jesus, Jesus, when are you going to return? And we talked about how every Christian answer to that is absurd and unnecessary, and you basically shouldn't listen to it. But this week, Jesus turns it around. Do you notice what he said at the end of the scripture reading? This whole thing about prayer. And then he does this weird little thing where he talks about the end. And what does he say? He says, when the Son of Man returns, will I find people who are faithfully praying and waiting and advocating for justice? The Pharisees asked when, and Jesus said, "Eh, when is important. The question is what your disposition is going to be whenever it does happen. Will you be participating in the great reversal of all things with your prayers and your presence and your gifts and your service and your cries. That's what Christmas calls for. It is the great reversal of everything.